In episode 15 of the Kids Math Talk podcast, we began a discussion about the impact of labeling and ability grouping in mathematics, which are two unproductive practices that actually hinder growth and can destroy positive mathematical identities. Today, we continue this discussion by talking with researcher and author Peter Liljadal about his new book, Building Thinking Classrooms, which focuses on unpacking practices that promote growth, community, engagement, and positive mathematical identities in order to promote student-centered classrooms. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. Today on the Kids Math Talk podcast, we have with us Peter Liljadal talking about his new book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics, Grades K through 12, 14 Teaching Practices for Enhancing Learning. So welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you so much, Desiree. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Part of the title of your book is the 14 teaching practices, which might sound to some of our listeners as as a lot, but the way that this book has been um, organized makes it so manageable. And so like you have those digestible chunks and and each chapter evolves and you don't have to read the book in its entirety to start to see the big picture, which I so appreciate. And you have the, um, the FAQs at the end of every chapter because it is a mindset shift for a lot of educators. And I really appreciate how you acknowledge that and you help continue to motivate us throughout the book and um, acknowledge our concerns to say, you know, like, just hold on, it's coming, just wait, just, uh, you know, trust this process and try out this one practice and then come back because it's not that you have to do everything all at once. And thank you for naming that and claiming that because it's not always done in every text and educators need to hear that and need to read that. And I I appreciate that you noticed that and that you picked up on that because it was very deliberate to do so. The other section headings where it's just like toward a thinking classroom. I love that word toward because this is a journey and that that also like as I continued to read the book and I kept seeing that toward a third, toward something, we're moving toward, we're moving toward. It reminded me of um, one chapter in particular with the evaluation and how that's always on the forefront of educators' minds because we have a passion. We want to help kids get that same passion, but then we still have to think about but evaluation at the end of the day and grading and all of that, you have these these five different ways of gradually changing our practice and having that arrow moving toward. So I was just wondering if you could tell us more about how you got to that in particular with the um, moving from like focusing on work to actions and all of those different practices. 
So, well, I do lay out a little bit of the story of how this was initiated in the in the introduction, and it was really it was my reaction to recognize. So, I for those people who haven't read the book, I spent time in forty different classrooms, K to twelve, observing students. So, not observing the teacher so much. The teacher took care of the teaching. I was paying attention to the students, and one of the things that I started to notice was that. Everywhere I went, I saw the same thing. The students were not thinking. And as I started scratching this more and more and more, I realized that there was very few opportunities in the lessons that I was observing for the students to think. And not only that, that the actual institutional structures of classrooms in many ways were not allowing students the opportunity to think. So I started to really just experiment with what are the things that we can change about the institutionally normative structure of classrooms um, that would that would at least afford the opportunity for thinking to occur. And this was really very much I was I was in the weeds. Like it was it was messy. We were experimenting with lots of different things. Eventually it started to take form and structure. And one of the ways that I got it to take structure was I I went and spent more time in classrooms watching what teachers do. And, and this time I was focused on the teachers. And I was focused on trying to categorize the distinct parts of a teaching practice. And it turns out that there was 14 of them. There are 14 things that every teacher does. And they do it in their own unique way. But there are these 14 things. Um, every teacher will give students some tasks to do. Every teacher will answer questions for students. Every teacher will have students give some sort of homework for students. Every teacher has students write notes. That's less true at, at the younger grades, of course. Uh, every teacher does evaluation. These are the 14 sort of meta practices that everybody's individual practice is made up of. And that became sort of an organizational structure for us then when we were doing this research was asking ourselves, okay, so if every teacher has students do group work, is there a way to do group work that promotes more thinking than other ways? If every teacher has students uh, do some tasks, is there a type of task and a way to assign tasks that gets students thinking more? And that really became the, the core of this 15 years of research into thinking classrooms. So, so that's sort of the emergence of how this came to be. The idea that it was this, this towardness emerged after we had found the optimal, the 14 optimal practices. And I put quotations around optimal because they're optimal within the space that we experimented within the context. But but once we found those, we also were keenly aware that no teacher could ever implement all 14 at once. Like it just is impossible. Um, not only is that overwhelming from a professional perspective, it would overwhelm the students to have a teacher come in and just change 14 things on day one. So we spent a lot of time experimenting with, okay, so we know where we want to get to. Now, what's the what's the journey to get there? What's the trajectory? How do we, where do we start? What's the first thing we do? Um, and we learn things that there are not are, are really bad places to start and really good places to start. 
And, and this emerged this sort of pseudo sequence, which I talk about in chapter 15, but that then became the organization of the book. Because once we understood the way that the, the best way for a teacher to implement these 14 things, I organized the book accordingly. So that, as you said in the introduction there, that a teacher can pick up and read chapter one and then go and do it. And then come back and read chapter two and then go and do it. And so, and each one of these things moves us closer and closer and closer towards a thinking classroom. So the structure has really emerged out of the sort of empirical research into this. Every chapter, it just made so much sense to me. And like you were saying, it's about the students, not about, they, they are the center of this work, not the teachers. And that's something also that you don't um, often see in a professional development book or professional learning book. It's usually about what the teacher needs to change because of the teacher. But I really liked how it was like, oh, this makes, this is going to help my students the most. So let me go and change and change that. And the the idea about the rubrics and making them more visual based because we are visual learners was that that made so much sense because I know when I first started in the classroom, I was actually a middle school science teacher and I had rubrics and people around me weren't using them, but relatively like new in our building, but they weren't picture based and they were very wordy and very um I think he said like nuanced and just it wasn't looking back on it. It's like, well, what was I doing? But I mean, I didn't I didn't know then what I know now. But just just sitting down and listening like you like you have done for so many years, just listening to students can make all the difference. Um, yeah. And can I jump in on that? Yeah, a little yeah bit? of course. So one of the things that we learned around evaluation and grading and assessment was that how teachers interpret and understand things is very different from how students interpret and understand things. And if we want to use rubrics for the purpose of helping students become better learners and better navigators of their own learning, then we have to use rubrics that communicate more clearly to students than communicate more clearly to teachers it turned out they were very different. So that I think is what you're picking up on there is that all that work in those chapters is about how do we actually construct and use rubrics that make sense to students rather than making my grading easier? Yes, we always say, you always hear that teaching is a selfless act, but then we have to continue to make it selfless in all the different areas in which we are interacting. I'm taking a quick break to remind Kids Math Talk listeners about all of the math professional development books that are available through Corwin Mathematics at us.corwin.com. Many of the authors of some of the latest titles have been guests on this very podcast. Search for Teaching Math at a Distance, Activating Math Talk, and also the book referenced in today's podcast, Building Thinking Classrooms, to get you started. Want free shipping? Of course you do. Then use our special code KMTSHIP, that's KMTSHIP, all caps, at checkout. 
Now let's get back to the interview. So something else, like I've been hearing about you and your wonderful work for for years and years. And um, so like I was saying to you earlier before we started, um, Dactin analyzing your all your research and with some of those colleagues, I kept hearing VNPS, VNPS and I was like, oh, okay, like, I'm not really sure what VMPS means, but now I know what it means, the uh, the vertical non-permanent spaces, and uh, something that I realized when I was still in the classroom, like, right before I came, became a coach, I was a third grade teacher, and I realized I was trying to, I, like, I did not have the language, did not ha- know your research at that point, but I was I was trying to get kids to to do this, like to to stand up to write on um, to write on our cabinets, but then I was told that I couldn't do that. So, so, so it, you know, so I went back to the desk, the regular desk, the regular like sit sit down and let, let's write in a notebook. But can you please tell us about this VNPS and the the okay. progression of this? Coming back to what I said before, so every teacher gives students something to think about, and then they usually give students uh, collaborative groups to think with, and now the question is, where are they going to do their work? And, And one of the most enduring institutional norms is that students will work by writing in their notebook. They'll sit in their desks and they'll write in their notebooks. And the question is, is that really the best place to do the work if if we want students to start thinking? And so we experimented with lots of different ways. Like, who would think that that would make a difference? That whether they're writing in their notebook or they're writing on a piece of flip chart paper, like, does it really matter? Um, It turns out it matters a lot. And when we started experimenting, what we discovered relatively quickly is that if we get a group working on a thinking task, standing at a whiteboard, working on a vertical whiteboard, um, we get way more thinking out of them. They think for longer, more of the students are thinking. And then there's a whole bunch of other byproducts. Like we get, they're they're more enthusiastic, they're, they're more collaborative, they're more communicative, they have more perseverance, like all of these things start going through the roof if we get them up on a vertical whiteboard. And that was, we ran some controlled experiments on that and it just kept coming back that this was by far the best workspace to have students do their thinking. Now, teachers are infinitely innovative and very few teachers have enough whiteboards in their room to be able to get all of their students working on whiteboards. So teachers started finding uh, hacks. So we learned very quickly that we can have students writing on windows or the side of a file cabinet. We could have students write on vinyl picnic table covers or that sort of cellophane or uh, that you wrap flowers in or make gift baskets out of. Is All of these work just as well. All they really need to be is vertical and erasable. And that's when the terminology shifted from whiteboards to vertical non-permanent surfaces because it wasn't that it was a whiteboard. It was that it was vertical and it was erasable. So that was this vertical and non-permanent being erasable turned out to be really, really, really powerful. Now we didn't understand why. 
we just knew that that's what was coming out number one in all the measures. Um, spent a lot of time doing theoretical work around this, trying to understand why is it that it's working so well. And there was a lot of little things that emerged. Uh, things like, well, when all the students are standing at a whiteboard, everyone's looking at the work in the same orientation. This was not true when we had whiteboards on a table. There was always some student looking at it upside down. It turned out that when it was all, when everyone was up on the whiteboard, if they needed to borrow an idea, that was what one of the kindergarten uh, students I met once said, I'm gonna go borrow an idea. They could just look around and get ideas from other students. It was easier for them to gesture. They were talking to each other in a different way. But all of these things were relatively minor contributions. What turned out to be the most significant, and it took a long time to get at this, was it turns out that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And that when students feel anonymous, they disengage. And that's both a conscious and a subconscious side. So they, they are much more likely to disengage when they're sitting than when they're standing. And if they're sitting far from the teacher, they're more likely to disengage. And, and we have verified this through lots of different experiments. So really what was happening was that when we were getting the students standing, they weren't feeling anonymous, they were less likely to disengage. And so they were more engaged, more focused, more uh, energetic and more enthusiastic in their work. So it's one of these acronyms that emerges in education. We love acronyms. This one's VNPS. Um, so I wrote down that idea of what you said, the kindergartner said, borrow the idea, because I think that that's such a beautiful way of thinking about it instead of like, oh, you stole my idea, which we sometimes hear kids saying, but inviting collaboration and saying that we're all working, we're all really working together. No one's stealing from one other person. We're building upon ideas or yeah. um, being inspired by somebody else's idea is much more powerful to think about. Yeah. And you were talking about engagement and just having, I'm thinking about how much that word has emerged since remote learning has been happening. I mean, it's always, it's always been with us, but I've never heard so many people talk about engagement before. Um, and thinking about disengagement and how, how to keep kids engaged, like beyond keeping their camera on or anything like that, but you were talking about not feeling anonymous and, that reminded me of one of the chapters in your book about the keeping the flow going yeah. and thinking about the ability versus challenge. So yeah. can you can you speak to this idea of flow? Sure. So so engagement is one of these. Let's start where we were, were talking about engagement. Engagement is one of these words that everybody intuitively knows is a powerful thing. It exists in lots of curriculum documents. Your principal at school probably uses it three times every time they talk about something. Engagement is just something we know is an inherently good. We want our students engaged. Um, and for me, engagement became a really important thing because I made the observation that when students are thinking, they're always engaged. And when students are engaged, they're always thinking. So engagement and thinking travel together. They're not quite the same thing, but they're always together. And if you think that you have students who are 
engaging without thinking. They're actually being entertained rather than being engaged. And, and engagement is really, really important. And disengagement, of course, is the antithesis to thinking. So how the question then is, how do we create engagement? Um, if engagement requires thinking. So there is a Hungarian-born uh, psychologist, works at the University of Chicago. His name's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, and he became, about 40 years ago, became interested in something he called the optimal experience. The optimal experience is this experience where you're so engaged that you don't want to disengage, right? And we see this in our kids like twice a year, right? Like the bell rings and the kids are so engaged they don't want to go out for recess or whatever. But he became really fat. So obviously this idea of the optimal experience is, has, has powerful educational implications. And so he studied people he thought were most likely to have optimal experiences. And he, and he studied them for a long time until he gathered enough data. And then he started to notice some patterns. And he noticed, for example, that every time someone's having an optimal experience, they lose track of time. They become less self-conscious. Um, they stop doing the activity as a chore and they start doing it for the sake of doing it. Um, he noticed that there was immediate feedback on action. He noticed that, that, and this is the most important one, he noticed that every time people were having an optimal experience, it was a perfect balance between the ability of the doer and the challenge of the task. And he represented this in a graph, but we don't need to have the visual here. We just need to kind of talk about three special cases. So special case number one, let's say that there's an imbalance and the challenge of the task is much, much greater than the ability of the, of the student. Well, we know, we've seen this happen. This is when students are gonna become frustrated. And now conversely, let's say that the ability is really high and the challenge is really low. Well, then the students are gonna become bored. So those are sort of two extremes. And now let's talk about when they're in balance. So this is where there's a nice balance between the challenge of the task and the ability of the student. This is where the optimal experience happens. This is where engagement happens. This is where what he started to call flow happens. So flow is this band on this graph where there's a perfect balance between the ability of the doer and the challenge of the task. And it's a really important place for us to think about as educators, because it turns out that in our classroom, there's really only three spaces students can be in this balance point within this relationship. Either they're frustrated or they're bored or they are in flow in, in this balance. And so if we're not maintaining the balance, we're either frustrating or boring our students. And neither of those is is helpful for for thinking or learning um so the so that kind of puts it on us to how do we create this balance and then of course this 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 is complex because not all our students are the same so we got 25 students who are all in different places and we're trying to create this balance um and not only that when students work on something, their ability increases. So now we have to increase the challenge as their ability increases. And we have a word for this in education. It's called differentiation, which is our ability to meet the learner where they are and to keep them engaged as their ability increases. 
except when we think about differentiation through the lens of flow, we, we kind of land in a different set of practices than if we think about differentiation through classic means. But that's sort of what flow is. Flow is ultimately trying to construct and maintain a balance between the challenge of the activity and the ability of the students. And it turns out to be vital because the consequences of not being in flow is that the students are either frustrated or bored. Loving this podcast? Great. Subscribe so you know when new episodes are released and leave us a review on Apple so that others can find these episodes. We are stronger together. And I'm wondering if a uh, a hidden consequence could be on a student's identity and thinking like, well, if I'm always in this point of frustration and I see other people might, I mean, they might not say the word flow, but they see that other kids are in that flow, then that's going to affect how they see themselves as doers of math. So, Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we know this, right? The disaffection of mathematics, um, low self-efficacy, um, poor attitudes about mathematics, all emerge from like, and I think you can you can see this. If you spend if you spend all your time being frustrated or bored, you're not going to develop a good relationship with mathematics. And I, and I think we can attribute this to a lot of uh, of some of the ails of mathematics that we see with students sometimes. Yeah, but just thinking about it in this set of three is helpful because you like you were saying there you do have so many different students that at different points but if we can think about it in like with that graphic that's in your book that helps to um, solidify it in our minds so that we can make sure that we're thinking about that flow for each child that that chapter nine is like I don't know if you notice when you're reading the book but I think in every single chapter leading up to chapter nine where you mentioned earlier just wait for it just wait for it almost every time I say just wait for it what I'm saying is wait for chapter nine it is. It, yeah, you're totally right. So continuing to think about the, the engagement, one piece of the structure of your book that I didn't mention is that um, the try this section where you have it in the different grade bands and you every you provide us with not not only these like um, these practices, but then you have these engaging tasks. So you like help you give us everything that we need to help us get started. And they're truly engaging tasks. There's one of them that I tried with my niece and I could, I could tell right away the, um, the flow that was happening when um, usually we see the, the boredom or the frustration. Um, And so keeping, keeping kids engaged, but I'm thinking that, taking those and taking taking that idea of flow and those tasks might help um, for lack of a better word like sell this to parents because if Mm -hmm. we're thinking if we're thinking about the idea of this thinking classroom as being a major shift for teachers a major shift for students is also going to be a shift for parents and we're thinking about even changing the way that homework is approached. And I don't know about everybody listening, but when I was in the classroom, homework was a big piece. I got parent 
calls a lot about like, oh, you know, we need some more practice sheets or we need some, you know, we need some, we need some more challenging work to do at home or we need another computer program. We need more homework. So, but you put forth this idea of changing that whole notion. So can you speak to that? So, so I don't think you have to be a classroom teacher for very long to know that homework is sort of a broken metaphor, right? Like, if I ask, if I have 100 teachers in front of me and I say, who does their homework? The majority of teachers will say the students who don't need to do their homework do their homework. And the students who need to do their homework are the ones who don't do it. They don't have support at home or they, they don't have the time to do it or whatever it is. And this idea, but but there's something honest and, and good about the idea of homework. And when I talk deeply to teachers about why, why is it you're asking students to do these questions? Uh, the number one answer I get is I really, I, what I really want is I want homework to be a safe place for students to test out their knowledge, to check their understanding, and see if they understand it, see if they can do it, to get some feedback, and then that feedback trickles back to me, and then, and it, it becomes this really sort of um, informal self-assessment that is ongoing and continuous, but that's ultimately we want, what we wanted to do. What's interesting is when I interview students, and I mean even young students, I say, why are you doing homework? And they tell me, because my teacher makes me, right? Or they'll say, because they're for marks. They don't ever say homework. Well, homework is a really safe place for me to check my understanding, right? And this is this, is this sort of disconnect, again, between the, the lived experience of teachers and the lived experiences of students. We have really good reasons why we want students to do homework. But the students are not doing them for those reasons. Um, and some, one of the things that gets in the way is we believe that homework is so important that we're going to mark it to make sure you do it. And what's interesting is the minute we start marking homework, homework is no longer a safe place for students to make mistakes. And, and so our messaging here is, it gets very confusing. I think it comes from a good place. But the students are not hearing that, so they're not acting in that way. And then what's, what, what becomes enacted is something that is deeply, deeply flawed. And when I do research on students and how they engage in their homework, only about 25% of students are doing the homework for the right reason, right? The other 25% aren't doing it, 25% are cheating, and 25% are getting tutoring help to do it, but not in a way that actually helps them to check their understanding and to learn, but just as a way to get it done. So it's so we thought, okay, so what, what's the problem here? The problem is that, that what, how we want students to engage in this activity is not how students are hearing us asking them to engage in this activity. So we actually, this, is, this turned out to be the easiest research we did. We just rebranded homework. We, we stopped calling it homework and we started calling them check your understanding questions. So we would give students a set of check your understanding questions. And we would give you an opportunity to check your understanding by doing these questions. And the students, depending on the grade and depending on, on the course, but you could picture this at an older grade where we would give, well, here's, here's 20 check your understanding questions. And we would give solutions, like here's the answer but not the actual worked out solution because they need to be able to check their answers so that, so that they work through it and they check, okay, I understand this. But we didn't tell them how many 
those we, they needed to do. We didn't tell them which ones they needed to do. We're just because, and we're not marking it. We're giving them an opportunity to check their understanding. And even when we do this with very young students, especially when we do it with very young students, that messaging is getting through much more clearly. And when we interview with students after doing this, we're saying, so why, why are you doing these check your understanding questions? And the students are like, wow, this is a place. This is an opportunity for us to see if we can do it on our own, if we understand it, right? And that's, and, and then we'll say, well, well, how many do you do? And they say, well, I'll do a few. And then if I see I understand, I'll move to the next section and I'll do a few more. And that becomes exactly what we want students to do which isn't happening when we're trying to force them to do it by calling it homework and marking it. So it's, it, it, it was sort of a really sort of interesting shift because really all we did was we rebranded it, but we had to be consistent in our terminology. We had to like stop marking it. And we had to come to terms with the fact that some students will not do all the questions. And, and that was, I think that was the hardest thing for, for teachers to come to grips with. But when we look closely at the data, we now have 80% of students doing these questions for the right reason. And for parents, it still looks like homework so that they're, they're okay with it. Um, and if they want more, we can give them more, but, but it's not, you have to do this. We're giving you more opportunities to check your understanding. Yeah, because that you have to do it can sometimes sound like a punishment or can sometimes yeah. be treated as a punishment. But I have yeah. to say that just last week, I think it was, I was um, virtually in a classroom where I had the opportunity to teach the class and I rebranded. And at the, at the end, instead of saying like, this is your homework, I said, this is your, check your understanding. And I actually saw a stu student who... He had his camera on, but he was like kind of like slumped over. And when I said that, he sat up in his chair and started like and started to to try out some of the problems. And then it was timed just because time constraints. Um, so yeah. I, I can't I gave him five or six minutes. So they had their cameras or their microphones on mute, but then before the time was up, one kid unmuted and said, you know, Miss Harrison, I, I tried out some. Should I stop? And I was like, you know, we still have some time. She's like, okay, I'll try some more. And so it was just, um, it was it's so nice to to hear and to, like to see the body language change and to hear the, I want to try some more, but it's, it was, it truly did feel like a, a safe space. I didn't interview any kids afterwards, but just that quick interaction, I did notice a shift. Yeah. Well, I'm, I love that story. It's so true. And this, it just kind of Keeps come back to this. The psychology of students is very different from the psychology of teachers. And our intentions are not always coming through in, in our practices and in our language. And when we can find that perfect connection where we're really communicating to students what it is we want to happen in a positive way, and then they interpret that positively and they just move in that direction. It's so, so satisfying. It really was. It was very, yeah. very sweet, nice. very nice encouraging. So when I first started teaching, I 
I had all my like names on, or was teaching third grade. I had all like each kid's name was on a popsicle stick and I spent a lot of time organizing my students and thinking about like who's going to work well together, different dynamics within student personalities. And I was, I was thinking about ability. I have evolved, but when I was first in the classroom, it was definitely, okay, high, medium, low kids, but that's, um, has been a mindset shift for me as well. And one of your practices about this visible random groupings and truly viewing diversity as a strength, I feel like is Mm. such a powerful message for teachers, especially as we are still in this remote situation a lot of us and as we're returning to the classroom it's you know it's socially distanced classroom so some of that thinking about viewing diversity as a strength might get lost but this practice mm-hmm. reminds us of how important it is so can you please tell us a little bit about that part of your research okay so what you described early on there with, with the popsicle sticks and trying to create those perfect groupings is, is what we call strategic grouping. So every most, most elementary teachers use strategic grouping to some extent. Um, strategic grouping is this idea that I, as a teacher, have a goal, and I can achieve that goal by carefully crafting my groups. And maybe I want ability groupings. Maybe I want more productivity. So I want to make sure I put the weaker students with the stronger students. Maybe I just want some peace and quiet, which means I got to make sure those four boys are not anywhere near each other or and, and so on. So these are we have some sort of a goal and then we try to achieve that goal by strategically creating our groups. The, the high school teachers are more likely to say, ah, just work with who you want. Um, and it turns out that in when we look at these things through the lens of thinking, neither of those turned out to be really the, that effective. And, and it turned out that they're not effective for the same reason. And that is that if we do strategic grouping or we do let you work with who you want, students enter into that group work already knowing what their role will be that day. And this was really eye-opening for us. We interviewed like 200 students. And after, after grade three, every single student we interviewed knew why the teacher had put them in the group that they were in. They knew that they had been placed in this group because I'm the slow learner and this person is going to carry me, or I'm the, I'm the strong person and I'm going to carry them or whatever. And so when students enter a group already knowing what their role is, for three quarters of those students, their role is not to think. And then so they enter that space, not with a predisposition of thinking, but as a predisposition of following. And we, we wanted to see if we could find a way to disrupt that. So the only way we could come up with a way to disrupt that was to do it randomly. So randomly, what randomly did was it just threw all of our preconceptions about students out the window. And, and a whole bunch of interesting things emerged when we started doing this. So first of all, it turned out that random was not good enough. It had to be visibly random. The students had to see that it was truly random in order for them to not believe that the teacher was being strategic. So taking those popsicle sticks and throwing them in a box and just randomly pulling them out or letting a student pull them out or using a deck of cards or random generator, 
so the students could see that it was random, allowed them to really enter that space, not knowing what their role was supposed to be, which, which meant that they all enter that space more likely to think. There was a whole bunch of interesting byproducts that came from this. Um, I'll get into the byproducts in a minute. So we learned it had to be random. It had to be visibly random. It had to be frequent, about once every 60 minutes. After 60 minutes, roles started to solidify again. So some of the byproducts were things like students became more enthusiastic. They started enjoying things. They were willing to work with anybody for an hour. This wasn't true if we put them into a, into a group and said, you have to work with this student for a week. But they were willing to work with anyone for an hour. It, it broke down social barriers in the classroom. And, and it really started to build community. You know, every teacher I've ever worked with says, I want community in my classroom. We have never found anything that builds community as fast as visibly random groups. If a teacher does visibly random groups every day for three weeks, in the third week, they will, they will say to themselves, I've never had a community like I have right now. It is, it is truly transformative this way. But here's some, and again, this was one of those things where we had the results, we didn't understand why. Why is this so effective? And to understand that, we have to go into complexity theory. Now, complexity theory says that in order for a group of individuals to be generative, to be a, an effective group, they need to have both redundancy and diversity. Redundancy is the stuff that they have in common. It could be common vocabulary. It could come, be common definitions. It could be com common notation. It's sort of that pre-existing pre knowledge, right? Because if, if you don't have that, you have nothing to start from. But if that's all you have, then you, the group is no stronger than the individual, right? Because if all you have is redundancy, then really the group is the same as the individual. What you, all, what you need for a group to be strong is diversity. Diversity, as you said, is a strength. Diversity are the different things that the groups bring. If you have only diversity, then it's chaos. You have to have redundancy and diversity. And groups of three turned out to have that perfect balance. Um, that was true of grade three and up. And I'll talk about primary in a bit. But groups of three seem to have just a, because if the groups get too big, it's unlikely you'll have redundancy. You'll have lots of diversity. If the groups get too small, it's easier to have redundancy, but you get very little diversity. Groups of three seem to have that perfect balance. And what happened, one of the other byproducts that emerged was, it turns out that our, our assessment of what students' abilities are is really predicated on what they can do as individuals. And it turns out not to transfer well into what they can do as a group. So, so what, how an individual functions within a group is very different from how they function individually. So we've seen this over and over and over again. Every teacher who ever implements visibly random groups comes back and I always say, tell me a story of some student who surprised you. And they always have a story of a student who they have always assumed is a lower achieving student who, has, who all of a sudden was leading their group. Because the skills that are necessary to function in a group are very different from the skills that are necessary to be successful in mathematics individually, right? To be able to be successful in mathematics individually, you got to be able to follow the rules and mimic and have good notation. But to be effective in a group, you got to be able to listen. You have to be able to articulate your ideas and you have to be able to think about multiple ideas and, and, and coordinate and, 
And those are the skills that actually turn out to be really valuable. So what did we learn about primary? Groups of three didn't work very well in primary. So if we take a, if we picture kindergarten, so kindergarten students come to school, they're still playing in parallel, right? If we think about collaboration in kindergarten, there's an evolution there. It starts in parallel play, and then it, it moves to, okay, polite turn-taking, which means that they're not really playing together, but they're sharing a resource politely and taking turns. And then eventually they move to this idea where they're actually starting to collaborate. So in primary, we do groups of two because that's where we can we can work on that move, that evolution from parallel to polite turn-taking to true collaboration and discussion. And then when we've reached that that critical third point, then we can start to increase the group size to groups of three. And this is not true of, so if we have a kindergarten teacher who then teaches the same students grade one, that teacher will be able to move into groups of three almost immediately. But really for kindergarten grade one and two, whether or not they're ready to move into, into collaborative work depends a lot on what sorts of opportunities they've had to develop their collaborative abilities in, in the previous grades, which which can happen and doesn't always happen. So, so that's it was a little different in primary. That idea of parallel play makes a lot of sense to have two versus three, but I'm thinking that three sounds odd to me, like not literally odd, but like I'm thinking of like, oh, I want to have groups of four to make every so that, but that, yeah. but then that would turn into really two groups of two. A lot of times it does instead of keeping with everybody. Or one group of three with an outsider. Yes, yeah. yes, very true. So groups of four, what we found was groups of four will devolve always. If there's unlimited resources, it really devolves into two groups of two. If there's limited resources, like one marker, it devolves into a group of three and one. What's interesting, however, if we had two groups of two who were working closely together and they spontaneously formed a group of four, it seems to work. But if we start them off as a group of four, it doesn't always work. It rarely works, actually. They make the choice to collaborate versus yeah. being told that this is what yeah. they're going to do. Now, interestingly, what we learned in from March onwards when the world went into lockdown was that groups of three were too small in an online environment. We needed to have bigger groups. And the reason for that was when a student... because. Online environments allowed for so much silence. It allowed, so, so if I create a group of three and one student doesn't have their microphone on, then that diversity is lost. And now, so, so we, have such a, we have so much less diversity. So what we found was in an online environment, we, wanted, we needed to go to groups of four or five just to increase the chance that the, that the diversity that was being mobilized within the space was enough. And then once we started to develop that, once the students became comfortable collaborating, we could move towards groups of three. But to begin with, we started with bigger groups. Because there is that idea of um, additional silence in the virtual space that is very uncomfortable and thinking about, is it wait time that you need or is it this idea of a larger collaboration group? So it yeah. gives us something additional to think about. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you. Again, like I was saying, this book is fabulous. It's filled with um, so many great resources. And 
I like how visual it is with the different, so that the end or near the end where you have the summary and you have the, the macro moves and the micro moves, it's designed as a, um, as an open notebook. And even though it's, it's writing, you usually have a graphic in addition and just they can remember that and I can come back to, to find it easily because usually I have to um, tab my um, tab my books. I didn't have to tab this book to remember where to come back to. So um, thank you for making it so visual. And well, I'll thank the um, people at Corwin for that because really it was it was such a huge team effort to make this such a visually appealing book. Completely well done. So yes, and like you were saying, it is uh, Corwin Mathematics, so you can head to their website to purchase this book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. Thank you so much for this time and for sharing your work and for, for doing this work. You can tell that it's it's been your passion for so long and continues to be your passion, and we're so much better for it. So thank you. Thanks, Desiree. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all the kind words about the book and the work. Parents, the question I leave you with today is how will you share this information about building thinking classrooms? Will it be by forwarding this podcast to your child's teacher or by having a conversation with your child's teacher about how groups are formed? Conversations are important and it's up to all of us to use our voices in order to promote positive changes for our children. This last note is for educators. As mentioned in this interview, the intent is not to try to implement all 14 of the practices that are a part of the Building Thinking Classrooms at once. Grab the book from us.corwin.com and then connect with some colleagues in your school or your district to start reading and building community. If that's not possible, connect with someone online. On Twitter, there have been several chats devoted to this book, and searching under the hashtag Building Thinking Classrooms will give you a great start. And remember to give yourself some grace. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com podcast, for previous episodes of this podcast and join us next week for another episode of the Kids Math Talk podcast.